every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. To Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name is Paul, I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel, eventually. Uh, this week we've made it to the end of season four. Um, some would say the the very welcome end of season four. Uh, we're covering the final two episodes of season four, 421 Primeval and 422 Restless. Uh, a couple of biggies uh, in the grand scheme of things. And joining me uh, once again, finally back on the show, Mary Ellen Iotropoulos, Director of Education and Experience for the Art Effect, a nonprofit arts and media education organization. Uh, and author and editor most recently, I believe, uh, unless my information is out of date, of uh, Joss Whedon and Race Critical Essays. Mary Ellen, welcome back. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, although there is something that I have written recently, so I can give you an update on the most recently byline. Please do. I was looking it up real quick because I forget the final title. Oh, the most recent thing that I have written is called Now That We Have a Black President, White Feminism, Post-Raciality, and the Curious Case of Boyd Langdon. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Yep. That Very will cool. be coming out in the um, re-entering the Dollhouse edited collection, edited by Michael Starr and Heather Porter. Uh, they are working hard on that. I think that my draft is due in August, so that might be out before the end of the year. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Very okay. cool. I will add that. Uh, I'll add that to my. I have an expansive sort of library in my show notes here, and I just pluck out the ones that are appropriate to my guests and and put them in the the attach them to the episodes as I drop them. So I will add that to my list. <laughs> All right. So um, yeah. Um, I, so I'm, yeah. I'm going to, we're going to try and be brief. I know I was telling Mary Ellen uh, before we started recording when we first got on the mic that uh, it's a little unfair because these are two sort of big episodes. I'm sure we're going to have a lot to say, but I'm going to try and be brief. I'm going to try not to ramble because uh, I'm trying to keep an appointment. So as much as I would love to, and by love, I mean hate, uh, but as much as I would love to discuss the state of the world that we find ourselves in at the time of this recording, Mary Ellen, we're going to have to postpone mm -hmm. that and just sort of get into the the meat of why we're here. So 
Yeah, let's dive into the text. All right. Well, let me give the uh, the dreaded spoiler warning first in case anybody is joining us for some reason for the first time here at the end of season four. Uh, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend if you listening at home have not already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and ideally Angel the Series all the way through at least once, Go ahead, press pause, um, go and do that, come back, we will be here forever, we're not going anywhere, even when the world burns itself down, this podcast will will persist, I assume, I don't know what happens. Oh, I hope so. Uh, but uh, at any rate, <laughs> I, we will allow you to have time to finish both series, so please go do that, you'll thank me later. Uh, and with all that out of the way, Mary Ellen, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's go to work. Um, so you you just said about some people might be looking forward to the end of season four. Yes. I want to step in and defend season four. Thank you. Which has gotten um, it, its fair share of critiques, but there are a number of, I think, really crucial episodes in season four. Mm-hmm. Where perhaps uh, not just self-contained episodes, but pieces of character development that happen. Right. Um, I mean, Tara and Willow. It's a huge source of joy for me, and season four is where it starts to unfold. Uh, I just love watching Willow realize how much she loves Tara. You know, that very first meeting that they have a few episodes back where um, they're at the, what is it called? The Blessed Wannabes, uh, that Wiccan group. Yeah, right. And Tara tries to stand up for her. The Wanna Blessed Bees, I think is what they call it, yeah. The Wanna Blessed Bees. Um, it's just so sweet and pure and I love it more and more as time goes by. Yeah. Um, um I, I've, I've said in previous episodes that season four, I, I am the person that tends to defend things that most fans don't. I'm more of a Riley fan than most people. I'm more of a Dawn fan than most people. Of course, Dawn's not till <laughs> next season. And I defend season four more than most, uh, Buffy fans, but on this rewatch, I will admit that um, season four, it has it struggles with pacing issues. I feel like that was the big problem with season four. Not necessarily the story it was telling, just the way that it paced itself. I feel like they could have maybe made some better pacing decisions along the way. But I completely agree with you. There's a lot of great stuff within season four that, um, like, if, if we didn't have this stuff, the series would be completely different going forward. So. Yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, one thing that happens that uh, people really overlook in terms of Buffy's development as a person is Parker. Right. I'm like, no, stinky Parker man. <laughs> Definitely not saying that he is a good character or one that should have been brought back or anything like that. But the idea of having a disappointing one night stand that results in hurt feelings that is not registering on an epic end of the world kind of scale just like the sheer banality of it yeah like this is a mundane jerk guy using women and buffy happens to be the woman this time around and we see how hurt she is and that's just part of life if not for parker her only concept of romance would be what she refers to as the you know doom and gloom um which just isn't realistic. You know, it is very rare that the first person you date in high school is the love of your life and your partner in helping to save the world on a weekly basis. You know, it, it's just, it's, it helps break open some of her naivete. Right. 
uh, in a way that I think is really important. Um, I also think that as a slayer, it's important to remember that she can still be hurt in ways that are not physical. Yeah. And that matters also. I'm not happy that she got hurt, but I am happy that she was able to get over being hurt because that also is an important part of psychologically developing. I I think the encounter with Parker, while it sucked, while it was happening, can be argued it did a lot for her character development. And speaking of characters that need developing, hey, how do you like that segue? (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you about your opinion on Forrest. Forrest Gates, who kind of has his time in the sun in this episode. So it's weird. I've... <laughs> Excuse me. I've talked a few times over the course of season four about how odd I find the character of Forrest, or not not necessarily the character of Forrest, but the choices that the writers make for him. Uh, specifically, um, more than once, they give that character some possibly troubling lines of dialogue to deliver, which I, I, you know, at the time in, in 2000, in the year 2000, when this aired, um, I guess maybe should have been troubling, but certainly wasn't. I don't remember feeling bothered by the portrayal, the things they had Forrest do or say, I'm specifically referring to things like in an earlier episode, they have Forrest be the one that refers to demons as they're just animals, man. Uh, and, and a few times he talks about, you know, they, we need to keep them locked up in cages. I don't know. They just, they have the, basically up to this point in the series, the only black character with dialogue uh, pretty much uh, be the one delivering those lines. And it just, it stood out to me uh, the few times that had happened earlier in the season. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I have a theory about Forrest that, uh, helps me make sense of the character. Maybe it will help you make more sense of the character too. Okay. Um, so there is this uh, theory in literary circles um, about homosocial bonding, uh-huh. which is this idea that the way that uh, people are kind of separated, segregated really uh, by sex and gender from a very young age and raised differently in these discrete worlds where boys become men and girls become women and you know, never the two shall meet until uh, there is marriage. Right. Um, that within the world of the boys becoming men, there develops this bond between them that they prize and hold above heterosexual relationships, such that when somebody leaves the homosocial world uh, to go into the world of heterosexual relationships, they are seen as betraying the homosocial and um, critics, I would I would say that tracks. Yeah. Um, critics uh, that I'm most familiar with have talked about this in terms of uh, Mercutio and his reaction to Romeo during Romeo and Juliet's romance. Yes. Um, in that Mercutio says things that uh, can be interpreted as exhibiting a hidden love, a romantic love for Romeo. And he feels very betrayed by uh, Romeo only feeling platonically towards him. So, again, this idea of the homosocial being that um, this it, it's a world where homosexuality is not really acknowledged as being a thing. And the way that repressed urges manifest is in homosocial bonding and that uh, two men may actually, you know, 
have feelings for each other and want to be in a gay relationship, but are not allowed to express that. So instead, they delve into um, macho activities and exercising their manliness and, you know, getting sweaty together and doing things that are absolutely homoerotic, um, but that are not seen as breaching the homosocial bond in the way that heterosexual erotics would be. Um, And then often uh, characters are punished for not breaking the homosocial. Uh, Mercutio is another example. He loses his love. He loses Romeo, and he really kind of gets the raw end of the deal in that. Uh, And I think of Forrest as a Mercutio character. Now, I want to say I'm not trying to make the case that Riley and Buffy are Romeo and Juliet because I can immediately poke holes in that logic. But I do like a reading of Forrest where he is in love with the military. He is in love with Riley. He cannot express his love for Riley within the structure of the military. So he wants to just stay boys going out and hunting with their guns forever with Riley. And he hates the threat to that so homosocial bond that Buffy represents. Oh, I think 200%. I, I absolutely, that is, <laughs> that is, I feel like that is on screen. I don't feel like that is even subtext. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, Forrest is constantly performing heterosexuality in a very awkward and clunky way that has always made me think, I'm not buying this. Like, he's saying this thing because he wants to come off as straight. Like, this is what straight guys say, right? But he is really saying it so he can get closer to Riley. Like, he, even at one point, I think he says to Riley, straight talk i know about girls okay (laughs) and it's like a big red flag that he is just trying so hard to stay in the closet uh well it becomes almost a tragic love story in a way when you think about how this trajectory that forrest thought that they were on like the two of them were plucked from military obscurity and chosen to become these new hybrid creatures and they were going to be so powerful together. And, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely, I have some sympathy for Forrest misguided though. He is monstrous. So he becomes, uh, he is not getting, he's not getting the guy that he wants. Speaking of tragic love and your, your, uh, your suggestion that it's, uh, (laughs) <laughs> that it's uh, mockable to pretend that Buffy and Riley are Romeo and Juliet. I would say, I don't want, I, we don't have time to make this a larger conversation, but I would say that, uh, yeah, you're right, because Buffy and Riley actually spend more time and have a much more mature relationship <laughs> that develops than uh, Romeo and Juliet do. Don't get me wrong. I love Shakespeare and I love Romeo and Juliet, but those were two like 14-year-old kids that met and within 20 minutes decided they were the love of each other's lives. Yeah. Um, but, also, Joyce is a much better mother than Lady Capulet. Uh, yeah, yeah. If I can say so myself, at least she meets Riley. There's this nice little exchange and restless, you know, nice to meet you. Finally. Finally. Such a mom moment. Oh, I love Joyce. Yeah. Um, um, so, for, so Forrest, in this episode, I just wanted to say that uh, I, I, in an earlier episode, I talked about how much... Um, I, I won't say that Adam is a great I won't pretend that Adam is a great villain he's just not he's not the best big bad that the show ever had I feel like there was a lot of potential in him I I like him when he's on screen I feel like that character could have been used again pacing issues with season four they could have made better use of the character of Adam than I feel like they did um 
But uh, one of the things that I feel like is unassailable on the character is the quality of like the practical makeup effects that they put on him. Oh, yeah. And uh, I thought that Frankenforest or Forestein or whatever you want to call him, <laughs> I, I love his physical look as well. Uh, it's just it's it's even more monstrous than Adam because you've got the 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 very obvious mix of the the racial tones between the human yeah. and the demon and. I mean, his teeth bothered me. I didn't like watching that actor try to talk through those prosthetic teeth, but the, mm -hmm. his visual, the Frankenforest look, I thought was really cool. Yeah, I agree. You know, I also have a kind of theory about why Adam doesn't work as well as he should. Because, hmm. yeah, in the abstract, I mean, he's terrifying. Uh, the whole thing, the government scheme to create a new breed of species that can be super soldiers trying to tame the supernatural to be used as weapons. Uh, it's insidious. And uh, at, in the very first introduction to Adam, where, you know, there's this little boy, I mean, I thought they did a good job building a sense of dread of like, oh, no, what's going to happen to the little boy? But but um, I think that it has to do with the cinematography of the show. Uh, when we see Adam, he very often is filmed in this kind of three quarters medium shot where you can see m most of him kind of from the knees up pacing back and forth mm -hmm. and kind of pontificating and using his arms and uh it comes off as very long-winded and almost professorial you know right. which i guess i could see as a uh maybe vestige of maggie Walsh. i was gonna say he gets that from his mother yeah. <laughs> but also uh, filming a character from a straight on angle like that does not make them scary. If they wanted to do this kind of pacing back and forth while explaining, you know, the fine points of his badness, at least if they had shot it from a, a low angle looking up or something off kilter to just visually make it more intimidating, um, I think it would have worked a lot better. We also see him sitting a lot. You know, um, like the judge electrifying people is way scarier than Adam sitting behind a bank of incredibly outdated computers. It just is. <laughs> like, true. how scared are you of a man behind a computer? <laughs> true. Very true. Um, Unless that computer is a place where you're editing your podcasts, and then... Yeah. <laughs> be afraid be very afraid <laughs> um so uh, all right so you and i are more sympathetic to the or are more appreciative of season four as a whole than a lot of people are but um i i think it's still fair to say that it's it is satisfying to see <laughs> it come to an end it's sort it's satisfying to get to the end of it and especially i had forgotten how i i in my memory, I always think of Restless as the the big finale of the mm -hmm. season, but it's not. It absolutely isn't. Primeval is the big climactic episode of the season. Restless is almost just a uh, an epilogue. It's like a yeah. bridge between season four and season five. And I had actually forgotten how good Primeval is. Like whether you're a fan of Forrest or not, whether you're a fan of Adam or not, or the Initiative, any of that stuff. I don't think many people would debate that this was a pretty well put together episode, even if you're just speaking in terms of production value, which I want to say 
that the whole cabin in the woods is sequence at the end of the episode. Oh my god, I have literally in my notes visual precursor to cabin yes, in the woods. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is so impressively put together. Now an awful lot of it I, I watched it I rewatched it again just earlier today, um, to to make sure that all of my notes were in order. And I could tell that an awful lot of the 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 wonder or the the excitement of like the the scenes when all of the initiative soldiers are just getting torn up and all of the demons are pouring out of the pit and all that stuff um if you're if you mute the tv and you're you're simply watching the visuals you're like oh well there's there's 10 actors on a on a sound stage just sort of uh stage fighting with each other it's not that exciting but add in the the music cues which were great and the sound effects and the lighting i don't know it it's at least to this point i feel like in the progression of the series it's one of the more well um orchestrated large combat sequences it's actually very effective i i thought yeah i agree i wish that they were able to spend more time on the kind of sacking of the initiative itself mm -hmm. uh for me, this episode um, kind of suffers from the pacing problem that you identified in that in the beginning, we we have uh, what feels like a lengthy series of scenes where a lot of characters are undoing the damage of the fight that they had. Um, you know, Spike is trying to undo his misstep in splitting up the friends mm -hmm. when Buffy should be getting the information on that disc from her friend to get her how and where Adam wants her down in the initiative. Um, Buffy walking around in the caves, coming to conclusions about, oh, this must have been where Adam was. Um, there's just a lot of slow buildup, and then it feels like the action happens very, very quickly. Yeah. You know, they kind of go from that meeting on campus where they're all coming out of not talking to each other to down in the elevator shaft, you know, hugging it all out to uh the the glass walls come down and the beasts are all out of their cage like really really quickly yeah that is um i that i that does have to go down to the pacing not just of this episode like this episode wouldn't have to have been paced like that if they had paced the season better this yeah. the story that's covered in this episode probably deserved two episodes <laughs> to be uh to be handled but um still with what with what they allowed themselves, I thought this episode was really well done. Uh, one of the things that I w was fascinated by, and I, I have repeated this ad nauseum, I don't remember all of my initial response to the show on my first viewing, but on this rewatch, um, I, I feel like I've discovered for the first time, I had a little epiphany of, uh, um, oh, Riley is, Riley just happens to be the first of Buffy's chipped boyfriends. <laughs> I thought it was a, I thought it was a fun little twist reveal uh, that Riley also had a had a behavior modification chip implanted, just like Spike. And they even follow that revelation up immediately by having Spike step into the scene. So it steps all around, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he steps into that scene, and he, while while Riley is standing there, a helpless automaton under Ad Adam's direct control, Spike gets to deliver the line. Uh, you know, Adam says, I didn't send for you, Spike. And Spike gets to say, yeah, well, I'm not much for being, I'm not much the being sent for type. So there's just mm -hmm. a direct shot there of Riley uh, 
is under the control of a modification chip and Spike is saying that he is not being controlled. I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting contrast. And I also, <laughs> I was also proud of myself for thinking, oh man, Buffy, <laughs> Spike isn't the first boyfriend that Buffy has uh, that has a modification chip. No, I mean, you might even make the argument that uh, Angel's curse is somewhat of a modification chip. Oh, well, hell, there you go. Yeah, we could do that yeah. too. <laughs> well, I mean, that goes back to, I. this is making me want to write more about my thoughts on Parker. Um, Parker is somebody that Buffy sleeps with who doesn't have some kind of behavior modification story going on. Like, there's no uh, MacGuffin on which we can blame his bad behavior. Like, he's just a jerk. And that, too, is an important lesson to learn for Buffy, that sometimes people are misbehaving because they, they've been under a curse and they've gone evil or there's a chip emitting neurological impulses. Or, but also, people can be jerks. Um, I, I think figuring out what is non-supernatural and what is supernatural is something that's always tough for Buffy to keep a grasp on. Well, that's another reason I think uh, uh, I was—I lost his name for a second. I was running through every single male character's name and trying to come up with Parker. That's another reason why Parker was uh, a nice addition to the the storyline because he—it it is nice to every once in a while have one of these elements that is just straight up not metaphorical. Like there's not anything, yeah. <laughs> nothing is couched or concealed. Parker just is what he is and he serves the purpose that he <laughs> serves. Uh, and it's not a demon masquerading as alcoholism or anything like that. <laughs> um, oh, indeed. It's also interesting to point out uh, as this is the wrap up of the, the initiative storyline uh, three years before this episode came out, uh, Joss Whedon had written the script for Aliens Resurrection or Alien Resurrection, uh, which also dealt pretty heavily with. I mean, we've already mentioned the connections or the precursors to um, Cabin in the Woods here, but uh, Alien Resurrection also dealt with the hybridization of science and supernatural. Yeah, yeah, it did. And, you know, this is where the message of the metaphor, I think, starts to get a little bit lost because uh, we have Adam championing hybridity and he's talking about Maggie as this kind of uh, messianic figure. You know, mother saw it all, like she had this whole plan mapped out and we're going to be better than any species. We're going to be, you know, bits and pieces of the best species. To... I, in a lot of ways, hybridity is wonderful and it is a little bit, uh, it, it complicates the message of the metaphor that we have an evil figure uh, kind of enforcing hybridity against the will or without the consent of the the people who it's being enacted on. You know, what kind of message does that send about um, people of mixed races, for example? Mm -hmm. I might be watching it where it's like, you know, they might be called hybrids. <laughs> By who, I don't know. Maybe they call themselves hybrid. I don't know. Um, being of mixed racial or ethnic descent and the idea of hybridity is something that scholars work with. So it's a little troubling to see it be so solidly evil. You know, it kind of is maybe counterproductive to points that the season elsewhere makes about how... Uh, <sighs> No, I'm losing it. I'm, lo I'm losing the metaphor myself when I try to talk about it. Elsewhere, it's like, it's okay if you are human, but also werewolf, or, you know, not all vampires are no. bad. But here it's like, 
hybridity evil must be defeated forest of demon parts in you it's okay for me to kill you even though you're basically saying the same stuff that you said the whole season hmm. i can't believe that it never occurred to me that there's a way of looking at all of this as um as coding hybridization as as evil i don't i never i never thought of it in those terms but i mean you're right there is it's worth looking at it in those in those terms i suppose yeah well i think it's especially pertinent that it's the government enforcing hybridity rather than uh there being some kind of genuine intergroup activities happening i mean it's not it's it's something that an institution is forcibly making people undergo. That's so, so that's so weird because maybe it's just that we're sitting we're currently sitting in the year 2019 and it's a different world than it was 19 years ago. Maybe maybe it's a different world than it was 19 <laughs> years ago. But at any rate, the world that we are stewing in right now is one where I would say it's a little unusual to picture uh, an an institution, particularly a huge institution like the military or the government, uh, being the one trying to enforce hybridization, uh, and the the civilian social group being the one that seems to be struggling against that and trying to maintain their uh, their I don't I don't know their purity, purity maybe separateness. Well, I, in one sense. Uh, they're just fighting against being killed for body parts. Yes. Understandable. Yeah. But also, yeah, the I'm trying to think now if we see um, hybridity elsewhere in Buffy being championed by characters who are normally aligned with the forces of good. Uh, I mean, we, we have Willow making the case to others that Oz is still Oz, even if he's a werewolf. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, maybe because I've been writing about Dollhouse, I'm thinking more about Dollhouse uh, showing that is evolutionarily beneficial to be able to take different bits and pieces of things and incorporate them into your being and use them according to your own will and evolve to become something more than just a sum of your parts. That definitely comes through in Dollhouse. Well, you know, you know. You know, of course, the thing where the obvious thing I feel like we've completely <laughs> we're completely ignoring here is that the the uh, I was going to say MacGuffin. That's probably not the word I'm looking for. But like the ultimate solution to the atom problem is hybridization. Yeah. Like the very the very yeah. point of the episode is that Buffy and the Scooby gang have to combine themselves into a gestalt uh, in order to defeat Adam. They do. They have to all get inside a super Buffy and there's nothing sexual about it whatsoever. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. So what, um, okay. So this episode introduces, yeah. uh, that's obviously something we need to talk about. Not only, uh, yeah, I love that take ball. That's really, really clever. I love that. I, I, so clever. Dare I say it? It's brilliant. No, I fake it sometimes, but, <laughs> um, uh, so that's obviously something thematically we need to talk about, but also I just, this episode introduces the concept, although it doesn't really, it, it covertly introduces the concept that, uh, 
we'll get delved into much deeper later of the first Slayer. Yes. Um, yes. So those two things I think we need to talk about before we head out of this episode, uh, the concept of the first Slayer, who actually, this is a question I have for you, because I, I genuinely don't remember how quickly this knowledge was sort of uh, became part of the fandom that the the first Slayer gets a name. Yeah, well, um, you know, for years, the first wave of Buffy scholarship referred to this character as the first Slayer or as the primitive. Right. And right. if we are inclined to fault them for that, we would do well to remember that the character is listed in the credits as the primitive. In fact, I'm pretty sure IMDb to this day lists the character played by Sharon Ferguson as the primitive. I'm going to look that up real quick while we are talking. Um, when it came time um, during the editing process of Joss Whedon and Race, uh, which I hesitate to say that we were the first people to think this through because it is very possible that other people did, but uh, I certainly made a point of yelling about it from the mountaintops uh, in every essay that there was this other possibility for what to call this character, which is Sinea. And that comes from the words of Willow's invocation when they, you know, uh, all become the super Buffy. Uh, and she says, uh, oh, what does she say? Um, she refers to Buffy as daughter of Sinea, first of the ones. And we had some of the authors of chapters in the book kind of push back against us and add in footnotes that said things like, while the editors contend that Sinea is the name of this character, um, I see no proof in the text itself of the show that we should call her that, which, uh, you know, we <laughs> found it very interesting. Uh, by interesting, maybe a little troubling, that the idea of going to a bit of a stretch to find a name for this character besides the primitive would be off-putting to some people. Because, um, I mean, there's a million ways that people use non-canonical words to refer to other characters uh, in the show, you know, or ships. I mean, how many times have we talked about Spuffy? Have we ever heard somebody say, you know, technically the word Spuffy never shows up in the text of the show, so I'm not going to use the word Spuffy. <laughs> I'm sure some. I'm sure someone has made that argument. Um, yeah, as, as I say, I'm totally sure that you're right, too. Someone out there shaking their fist and saying, I'll never say Spuffy. <laughs> I actually, for a, for a brief moment as I was putting my notes together, um, I actually was going to, because I don't remember where I first became aware of the name Sinea. I, I, I think it's been used, I don't know, maybe in the comics. I, it seemed like for the longest time, I also thought of her as just the first Slayer. That was just the name I associated with that character. Um, and then I, at some point in history, I I became aware of the name Sinea. I don't know. But as I was rewatching the episode, what I thought I heard... So the invocation refers to the hand, daughter of Sinea, first of the ones. Um, and obviously, if you read that text and you watch it in context of the scene, they are referring to the hand, meaning... Buffy, mm -hmm. daughter of Sinea, first of the ones. But for for a little while, as I was composing my notes, um, I had left the hand part of that quote out, and I was actually thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're not saying uh, that her name, that the first Slayer is 
is named Senea, they are referring to her. The power they are invoking is daughter of Senea. So what they're saying is the first slayer descends from some being named Senea. That, and then I rewatched it again, and I was like, no, 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 that's not it. No, they're they're saying that the hand who is Buffy is the daughter of Senea, referring to the first slayer. Okay, so anyways. Um. That is how I prefer to read it, um, because it makes sense to have a name for this character that uh, is not just implicitly derogatory. Well, the other difficulty that's added into this, and I, I am not dismissing the name Senea at all. I think it is accurate. I, I believe that is correct. But I think another confusion that's added into this debate is the fact that in the next episode, Restless, the the what very little dialogue, I guess, in air quotes, that we get from Senea, um, she actually says, we have no name. Like, she actually, it's it's ironic, I guess, since she is saying, we have no language, <laughs> uh, yeah. we have no name, or whatever. So even it it looks like on screen, the character themselves themself, is saying, I don't have a name. Yeah. Well, are we are we ready to dive into that moment? Because we got some unpacking we can do yeah. with that. Yeah, um, yeah, do it. So this is another one of these moments where uh, it's sort of the your fave is problematic way of thinking um, in flesh and form that it is critically important that we just really sit with. You know, we love this show, and also this particular exchange is kind of troubling. Because Tara, which, which one are we talking about now? So talking specifically when Tara appears to talk for Senea, right? Um, she says, um, "I have come to speak for her," and then she starts to say words uh, in the first person. So we are presuming she is kind of stepping in as the voice for this character, the first slayer. Mm -hmm. But the first slayer can talk. Um, she says things a little bit after, you know, no friends, just kill. Uh, so she must be able to express syllables in English at the very least. Um, so why is she content to have another person, notably a white woman, come in and be her voice? Uh, what's going on in that moment? Um, is she through her consent, getting a spirit guide to speak for her is uh, Tara kind of a cultural mediator where this figure from an ancient past is being translated for a modern audience of Buffy. You know, you know, uh, it's, it's super troubling that they chose to do that. Um, I, this is, it's kind of indefensible actually in hindsight, but at the, yeah. at the time. So I apologize in, in all of my various research, I didn't look up all of these dates and, and specific timelines, but I think at the time, the, the, the vibe we were supposed to get from the first slayer, the primitive is that she was a prehistorical character. Like she's so old that she predates spoken language or whatever, um, which 
the show i'm pretty sure the show and certainly the tie-in materials the books and comics that came after um, have completely debunked because they've actually set a specific timeline when the the shadow men created the first slayer um obviously there was spoken and written language at that point in history so she shouldn't she's not that old she doesn't predate spoken language um but i feel like that was the the vibe we were supposed to get that the source of the slayer is from so far back in history that there wasn't spoken language at the time which is utter nonsense or even i i absolutely agree with that and in addition to that um there is also this constant juxtaposition of Sinea and her gestures and her body language with animals i mean more than one time the sounds that are played uh, as though, you know, the implication being that this is Sinea making these sounds are literally canned leopard sounds and other large cat sounds. I have um, to say, I have to interject here because I, I, I know you're pointing this out as a problematic thing, but and, and we can unpack that. But one of my favorite scenes were we're skipping ahead a little bit into restless at this point but but uh one of my favorite scenes in restless is the slow motion uh juxtaposition of miss kitty fantastico <laughs> prowling yeah. towards the camera uh in black and white um as we're seeing our first uh quick cut glimpses of Sinea as she's also stalking towards the our characters but in in as much as yes you're right that is the implication there is that the first layer is subhuman or is an animal um, yeah an animal not capable of human speech and i mean i i'm right there with you paul it's incredibly effective um because the slow mo of the cat the idea that our domestic animals um when shot so that they fill up most of the scream screen uh look like large cats and are terrifying and predatory <laughs> even though you know the camera pulls back and you see she's the size of a shoe like that in that shot it is a menacing little kitty fantastico there's another I element of that scene that i didn't even think of until just this moment and that is the the dialogue that uh dream dawn and dream willow are having right there is that um we don't know what her real name is talking about Miss Kitty Fantastico. She hasn't told us her name yet. So I don't remember what all of the actual lines of dialogue there are, but it's the two of them talking about how um, they they don't know Miss Kitty Fantastico's real name. And uh, Willow says something like, well, she's still young. She hasn't grown up enough. The implication being as she gets older, she'll reveal her true name. Um, and then, of course, there's the the they're drawing the visual parallel between the first slayer and Miss Kitty Fantastico. So there's yet one more subtle, I guess maybe, or maybe it's just cause I'm slow, but one more <laughs> subtle suggestion that the first slayer is nameless. Absolutely. Um, if you're slow, then I am slow also. Cause I'm just putting that together right now. Also that is very interesting and absolutely right on the money. And, um, well, uh, this is when it comes for shameless self-promotion time. Um, this reminds me of a essay in Joss Whedon and Race by a scholar named Nellie Strelau um, that is about the positing of this, the current Slayer, Buffy, as a ahistorical present that erases the past while it triumphs over the past. Um, so the idea that 
this present time that we're in now is the pinnacle of evolution so far. And obviously things that are older are worse, more outdated, slower, less intelligent, uh, that kind of thing. For the dynamic to be such that some people are talking about names and commenting on names and wondering when are we going to hear the names and another character is nameless um that just sets up a uh, uneven power balance which totally passes us by as completely normal you know um and it, it also is visually really cool so we are maybe encouraged to be stunned by the visuals and to not critically think like now wait a minute though if the source of Buffy's power is primitive and animalistic, what does that say about slayerness? Because then another layer to all of this, and we're sort of talking about episode four with, or sorry, season four with season seven in mind, but uh, we know from Get It Done in season seven that the way that the slayer was created was kind of out of an act of enforced hybridity, right? The shadow men put the demon inside the girl and that makes it so that slayerness has its root in being demonic yeah when we get fully into restless one of my uh, i've already mentioned I've, i already said the slow motion miss kitty fantastica was one of my favorite shots my favorite shot from uh, restless involves uh an on-camera denial by Buffy that she is not a demon or whatever. And my notes are like, are you sure? Are you sure? Let's think about that. Let's hold, hold that thought. We'll come back. We'll circle back to that. But, um, oh, we were still talking about primeval uh-huh. or if we want to move on completely from it, there's just one more thing that I wanted to, um, bring up, which was, uh, in terms of, uh, visual precursors or things that happen in primeval that we see developed in different forms, but with some consistent undertones elsewhere, the Whedon versus um, the council, the council at the end who give us this kind of denouement where we find out that I love the way that it is phrased. Uh, it was only through the actions of a deserter and some civilian insurrectionists that our losses were not total. You know what I mean? I'm like, Ooh, civilian insurrectionists. Like that's a pretty cool term for Buffy. Yeah. Um, but that council uh, is a uh, kind of antecedent for the way that Whedon configures the World Council in the Avengers. Oh yeah, which is this kind of governing body that communicates to our protagonists or about our protagonists through screens. And kind of in an ominous, undefined space, like that scene where you've got these white guys in suits sitting around a table, you'd presume in a war room, but the background is completely black. It's like they exist out of place and time uh, is something that also happens when um, the World Council tries to order Nick Fury to nuke New York. Um, And that sort of uh, timeless, authoritative intimidation via bureaucracy is something that Whedon returns to over and over again. Uh, and I don't know that this is the, f- is this the first time we see that in Buffy? It's the, it's certainly the first time it might be the first time we see anything like it. It is absolutely the first time we see a m- like military government body. I mean, in yeah. season 
was it season one with uh, the invisible girl? The episode name of is that? I don't remember the yes. name of that episode now. We saw oh, like the um, we saw the assassin school and we saw some FBI agents, but that was it. We did um, out of mind, out of sight. Yeah, there you go. Which also, fun fact, if you go back and you pause it right on the screen where Marcy is opening her book to the first page about, I think it's assassination or infiltration techniques. Yeah, um, I don't remember this, but I do remember talking about it on the episode where I discussed it. So remind me what it was. <laughs> I, I, I did pause the scene and look at what she was reading. Um, she, What she's reading in the text, the words instead of ipsum lorem or whatever, the lyrics to happiness is a warm gun by the Beatles. That's what it was. That's yeah. what it was. I, I remembered there was something about that that I thought was fascinating. Mm -hmm. and okay. then... An another thing that the shadow, the, that the council at the end says, the sort of shadowy government guy, he says that the initiative complex should be filled in with concrete. So not yeah. so not what happens because in season seven they easily they very easily go back into the underground um, yeah. initiative complex. So. Sunnyvale has a real problem in demoing their abandoned, dilapidated structures. Right? I mean, yeah, the that high damn high school is just sitting there. Yeah, they step on mayor meat, so like. <laughs> Nobody in Sunnydale is about to clear the place after they're just letting it stand. This this huge what? That doesn't make any sense. For a military operation, you would think that they would have their stuff under control a little bit better than the local high school or municipality or whatever. I I, I don't know. We yeah. we have to not look at these things too hard, right? Because then we start to drive ourselves a little nuts about the off camera. <laughs> Mayor Mayor Mead is my King Crimson cover band, by the way. <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to tell Dan that you said that uh, King Crimson is one of his favorite bands. Oh, and that, that also reminds me, the last thing I wanted to say about Primeval is that um, when uh, Dan, my husband, shout out to Dan, hello, hello very kindly rewatched this episode with me last night, um, you know, for the millionth time. Uh, when the ultimate showdown between Forrest and Riley happens, you know, it involves Forrest holding up this big metal container of you would, what would, you would presume is flammable gas. Right. In fact, uh, I think in large, in large text, it just said flammable. That's all it yeah. said. Um, Dan looked at me as though thinking of something for the very first time and he goes, oh, he jawsed him. Forrest just draws Riley and it was a charming adorable thing to say and also completely on point yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he got jawsed for sure he got jawsed that's great in fact the the those obnoxious prosthetic teeth that I was talking about earlier that the poor actor was forced to talk around kind of <laughs> kind of look a little bit like the prosthetics that uh, the Bond villain Jaws had to wear Oh. I know it's a different Jaws, totally different Jaws, but still, that's two Jaws hey. that you could associate with uh, with Frankenforest or Forestine or whatever we're going to call him. <laughs> um, Ooh, I love okay. that yeah. Frankenforest. Okay, so, so wait, hang on. Closing thoughts on uh, Primeval, just that uh, I already said I loved all the action sequences. I thought that stuff was very well done. Uh, the Matrix scene also I thought was really cool. Like, I just feel yeah. like their special effects budget for this episode must have been pretty good because... Uh, they had the whole her stopping bullets and then turning the turning the grenade or the rocket into a couple of doves. I mean, that was just that was cool stuff. I liked that. That was cool stuff. 
the one part that weirded me out a little on the rewatch was the uranium core that Buffy extracts. Um, in watching it, it looks like the prop has a couple of uh, elements of backbone affixed to it. <laughs> and uh, I think there must have been three or four different versions of the prop because I swear from shot to shot, the amount of vertebrae that is still attached to this core changes. And uh, I mean, not that the show should be judged against its continuity of vertebra. <laughs> vertebral uh, continuity is not Buffy's strong suit. <sighs> this would not be the first time that there have been uh, <laughs> continuity gaps between takes. But Yeah. Um, it made me think though, that it is nearly a mirror image of what the first layer does to Xander in restless. Oh yeah. This punching of the chest, the grabbing of a, vital organ and extracting it um, is something that Buffy did to the bad guy. The, the, it's not a uh, an act that is exclusive to uh, evil characters, although I, I hesitated to say that because Sinea isn't an evil character. She's just the antagonist in right. that particular episode. Uh, that scene also makes me wonder about the... Uh alternate universe that uh that super buffy uh banished that uh, uranium core to and how <laughs> somewhere in that dimension there is a an irradiated uh giant spinal column that is now ruling over that dimension <laughs> yeah you know you'd think that they returned to that spell more than once when they had something they need conveniently disappeared to another universe well yeah, there are often times uh, on this show where they pull out some some big magic to to save the day, and I wonder how come that never comes back. Like, why do we never ever see them use that again? Um, at least in this case, they in the so let's move on to restless. And le at least in this case, they demonstrate that oh, there were repercussions of them doing that spell. Yes. Now, I don't know. When it comes down to saving the world, I suspect maybe there are some events in the future seasons where it might be worth risking this price again, but still. Yeah. I mean, especially with the way that this particular exchange with Sinea ends, and they're you know, maybe not best friends, but they're no longer being chased and hunted by Sinea. Like, maybe inhabiting that same Buffy super vessel could have banished the first to that kingdom ruled by a uranium core with vertebra right. attached to it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's do restless. So uh, Joss Whedon writes and directs to take us out of uh, season four. <clears throat> and there's a lot of stuff that happens here. This is, um, I, I thought this is one of the most beloved episodes, but in sort of my research, I found that I guess maybe there's kind of a 50, 50 split. Some people either, really love it or and and then some people either dislike it or just kind of think it's there there there's a there seems to be a pushback against dream sequences or dream episodes or whatever i personally love this kind of stuff if anyone listening is part of the 50 percent who really loves restless i highly 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 recommend checking out the aesthetics of culture and buffy the vampire slayer a book by mr matthew pateman um who is one of the smartest 
uh, people I have ever met and his vocabulary. I mean, every time I read something out of this book, I have to look up a number of new words, one of which um, it wasn't new this time around, but he introduced me to it. The word involution, which basically means dreaming. But sounds fancy. Excellent. That is, I just had to scroll down to the bottom of my text here, and that is one of the books on my master list, my my library list. So excellent, because in this book he has an entire chapter called "The Aesthetics of Involution" that uh, situate restless within other strategies of dreamscaping across um, the Buffy verse. But then he has an entire chapter on Willow's dream, an entire chapter on Xander's dream, an entire chapter on Giles's dream, and an entire chapter on Buffy's dream. And, you know, these are maybe seven to eight minute segments of television that have resulted in 25 page chapters of analysis at it. It's very impressive and it is very, very informative. I, I would highly recommend. Awesome. I'll pull that up into the into the show notes and include that link for anyone who wants to check it out. Um, and um, I I would kind of like us to talk about this episode uh, in in order of people's dream sequences. Yes, let's please do. So let's um, let's start with Willow's dream. Okay, so Willow's dream. Um, one thing that uh, really jumped out at me during this rewatch to prepare for this podcast about Willow's dream was uh, curtain imagery and the pulling back of curtains. Um, because number one, there is kind of a crude metaphor there for curtains and uh, lesbianity. Yeah, my my note is Willow finds Tara in all the red velvety curtains, and then I've got a little <laughs> gasp face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was it was not a subtle metaphor. But also the idea of pulling back the narrative curtain of the dream uh, and kind of jarring us out of the Willow dreamscape. There are a couple of instances in Willow's dream where we see things that Willow, the dreamer, is not a part of and might not see. Uh, for example, when she is in the hallway and she encounters Xander and Oz and she stops at her locker for a minute and then she moves on and Xander and Oz are still there and the camera stays with them. She walks to the next part of her dream, but we are there watching Xander and Oz say, well, Xander say, uh, sometimes I think about two girls doing a spell and then I do a spell myself. Yeah, and it's a, a great it's, line. It's It's a hilarious joke. Is that something that Willow's brain would have Xander say in a dream? Well, I... the 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 debate we could have here is how much of this stuff is strictly the the sort of dream creation of each of these people and how much of it is some some powers that be influence or whatever. I mean, I can buy that there's like a shared dreamscape that they're all operating in and that we as viewers can stay in one corner of the dreamscape while the dreamer that we are with narratively has moved elsewhere. But, uh, you know, it also is just for the, the production reality that they want to show other characters doing things. We we wouldn't get the wonderful scenes with Riley as cowboy guy. Right, because um, she's talking to Tara in the curtains, and then it cuts back to this stage performance that's happening without Willow, 
I mean, there's people in the audience that presumably are not Willow. The people on stage are not Willow. That's something that is portrayed in Willow's dream that Willow doesn't seem to be a part of. But I'm glad that it is because they are hilarious scenes. And one of my favorite shots, actually a shot that I have used in uh, film classes with middle and high schoolers before, is the shot of Buffy's monologue at Cowboy Guy. You know, the whole throw them in the drink and wait for the bubbles, men. I actually, I actually have that full quote pulled out here. I'm not going to read it, but <laughs> I did pull out that entire quote, which uh, Sarah Michelle Geller recites, I believe, in a single breath. Yeah, it is amazing and fun. And the way that it is framed, we have Riley's face in the very close-up foreground, slightly out of focus. Then we have Sarah Michelle Geller in her flapper outfit um, yelling at, but at the uh, at Riley in the midground, and then behind we can see Harmony dressed as a milkmaid, yeah. <laughs> crying over what appears to be a dead body in the way background. So the idea of having different characters in foreground, midground, background, all kind of depending on each other to bring something to the visual composition of this one shot. Um, it can be tough for first time filmmakers to kind of wrap their minds around how the background is not just the space around your character. That's also a storytelling space that you can make use of. Yeah. Another great uh, line that comes out of that particular moment, not that, not Buffy's dialogue, but right before that we get uh, um, Giles as the director and he delivers uh, the line about acting's not about behaving, it's about hiding. The audience mm-hmm. wants to find you, strip you naked, and eat you alive, so hide. It's all about subterfuge. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- just thought that was great. Joss insists that that uh, very little of this stuff actually means anything. Like he he was he was dedicated to making this be sort of nonsensical dream stuff, and that he wasn't trying to hide <laughs> things in here. I feel like that's crap. I feel like so much like maybe we're just conditioned at this point to read into absolutely everything, uh, particularly the, the, the slayage aspect where you, you, you smart people try to analyze every line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're just trapped in that loop, but um, I find it hard to believe that some of this stuff doesn't actually mean something. So, well, I think that, meaning is outside of Joss Whedon's control to say is it there is it not there he might not have intended for that meaning to be there but if our brains are picking up on it and constructing it then it exists even if he didn't intend for it to uh oh well here's here's an example of something (laughs) towards that effect that uh, it was an experience I just had rewatching this, but the showrunners had no idea that this would ever happen. Um, I don't know if you watch Buffy on Hulu. Yes. Uh, so have you seen the ad that I think it's for a car? It's someone singing the hokey pokey and kind of an old timey, big bandy kind of like you put your right hand in, you take your right hand out. No, I, uh, I, I, I fork out the money to not have to watch ads on Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we rewatched this last night, and at the end of Xander's dream arc, Sinea forces her hand through his chest and grabs his heart and pulls it out, fade to black, and what comes up next but 
you put your right hand in, you take your right hand out. <laughs> Excellent. I could not believe that that was how that happened. How could that have happened? That I mean, Surely that was not intentional. Maybe an algorithm somehow put the two together. But it was hilariously in bad taste it's, it's one of those it's one of those scary guys sitting behind a computer <laughs> yeah. um, so uh last thing i want to say about willow's well first of all i thought it was brilliant the whole classroom scene i thought was just amazing uh with her with willow wearing the same outfit she wore in in welcome to the Hellmouth. yeah uh it was just beautiful but um Nikki Stafford in uh, in Bite Me, the unofficial guide to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, she is talking about that scene and uh, specifically about the fact that Willow, um, her book report is on uh, the Narnia books, mm-hmm. um, and and Nikki points out that um, Willow's story has some has some thematic similarities to what goes on in those books. In those books, you know, the Pavensi kids they get pulled into the magical world of Narnia and they discover a world full of magic and everything. But as the stories go on, they realize that this other, this world of magic is not as bright and shiny and wonderful as it seems. And similarly, Willow has uh, come out basically. And she's in this larger world of magic and wonder. And as the show goes on, uh, she will gradually discover that magic is not all uh, wonderful and bright and happy. Yeah. And so. Oh, absolutely. Um, there is a distinct literary theme running through Willow's Dream as well. We start with kind of Greek classicism, um, that writing on Tara's back that she's doing is homework, uh, which also, sexiest homework assignment ever. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, that is a poem by Sappho. Um, the Greek poet who is famous for being known as the the prototypical lesbian. Um, yeah, it's and, the hymn to Aphrodite, right? Yeah, they uh, then move into Death of the Salesman. Yeah, which I don't. Uh, I, I'm not enough of a scholar. I'm not familiar enough with Death of a Salesman to figure out all of the allusions or whatever that were made there, but. Yeah, well, there is no cowboy guy in Death of the Salesman. I didn't think so. I didn't think so. Although, again, I kind of love the campiness of Riley as cowboy guy. Not subtle. (laughs) Not subtle at all. And completely loving how unsubtle it is. Like, they just decided to embrace it. I applaud them for that. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, then um, Harmony kind of has a Heidi thing going on. Mm Mm-hmm which is a weird contradiction of what we know to be her vampiric nature. Like she is not sweet and innocent and all rosy cheeks and uh, milkmaids. Um, you know, that's so, it, the, again, here's another larger conversation to save for another time. But I, I, the last time I read, oh, never mind. I apologize. You, you were saying Heidi, you're absolutely right. My brain was thinking Pippi Longstocking for some reason. I don't, I have no idea why. I don't know why my brain went there, but so they both I, have pigtails. I don't may, know. Maybe, but I, I was thinking back to my childhood. The, the one and only time I ever had any familiarity with Pippi Longstocking was 
was as a in grade school or whatever and i remember being terrified by the character of pippi longstocking pippi longstocking it would be interesting to revisit and find out if pippi longstocking is considered one of the the anarchic trickster gods of of uh, literature or whatever because as a kid i was horrified by the character of pippi longstocking (laughs) yeah pippi longstocking was pretty intense um well, back back to the the literary themes um, and sort of the evolution of literature reflected in uh, Willow's dream. Um, Death of a Salesman is ultimately about the futility of life, or well, I guess it depends on the the main character Willie Loman. He comes to the conclusion that his life has all been for nothing, you know, that he's felt like a cog in the machine, and that uh, he wasted his opportunities and he didn't. Uh, really get everything out of life that he was promised. Um, whether that's the attitude that the play takes towards that character arc is debatable, but uh, it is interesting to think of how that factors into Willow's relationship to the death of a salesman play. Everybody else is so excited about this kind of play about the demise of early 20th century or mid 20th century business values you know, and the ultimate futility of them. And they're having to insert things into that structure to make it more interesting and exciting to them. And Willow, meanwhile, is just out of there. Like, she's not even concerned with it. She's onto a different world. She is back to the red velvety curtains while people are worried about the guy in the suit and the dead body on the floor. For the record, I... I don't usually have those uh, those cliche stereotype nightmares of like realizing that you're at work with no pants on or whatever. But mm-hmm. I I frequently like frequently enough that it should come up in my therapy sessions. Uh, I frequently have nightmares that involve this kind of situation where, and it actually is specifically about high school where I show up and suddenly don't know what class I'm supposed to be in or don't know what the homework assignment was or that kind of stuff. So the, this, uh, Willow's whole thing of showing up to the first day of class and they're already putting on the play. I 100% identify with that nightmare. So, yeah. And your family's in the front row and they look really angry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Paul, me too. I have a recurring scenario where I'm about to give a big speech or one time it was a violin performance and I have done zero preparation and I think it's a procrastination nightmare and I just try to hide somewhere Mm -hmm. so they call my name it's like whoop they can't find me so I can't stand on stage and do nothing Uh, very occasionally I will be interrupted by some kind of catastrophe that happens in the auditorium um, <laughs> so that I'm kind of saved by disaster when that you know like something comes crashing through or uh some person shows up and everyone is not expecting to see them and then I deal with that instead of the performance that I didn't prepare for but uh yeah that classic manifestation of anxiety yeah. uh, that's why I don't blame her for wanting to hide um I think it's interesting that with their four arcs it's like Willow's is about hiding. Xander's is about running. Giles is about finding an explanation. Buffy's is about confronting. Because um, I'm nice. trying to... Yeah, does that... How does that line up with with their 
their characters, their character arts? Well, <clears throat> I mean, Willow, um, Willow, this whole season has been, um, well, Willow, Willow has always been the, the, the more quiet, like her, her history is that she was always the quiet, uh, passive one. <clears throat> and this whole season has been about her hiding might be too strong of a word, but not necessarily wanting to be forthcoming with her relationship with Tara. Um, Xander, I think it's safe to say that Xander does. I, I mean, technically he's only done it once. Buffy's done it at least twice at this point, but he does sort of, I guess, run away from his problems. Like he went on that road trip um, yeah. between season three and season four. Uh, he, he's, he's not going to college. Uh, he doesn't stay at a job for very long. I don't know. Um, well, absolutely. One thing that Pateman points out in that book, uh, The Aesthetics of Culture, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in the chapter about Xander's dream, is the uh, anxiety of travel and trip-taking reflected in Xander's dream that is possibly in response to his failed trip, uh, his failure to go to his destination. The engine fell out of his car. It's right. sort of mechanical metaphor for your heart being torn out and how the dream itself not only involves travel in terms of walking from one side of the school to the other or being turned upside down and suddenly finding yourself inside of heart of darkness (laughs) right which was a Um, great scene oh it is i um what is his name armin shimmerman yes is such a fantastic actor. Like I can feel how good he is just coming through the screen. It's like he gets a very small amount of time in the spotlight, but he nails it. Absolutely. Uh, I I just love that guy. Yeah. Um, you know, I hadn't thought of that. I, uh, I clearly need to read that book. Uh, but uh, I hadn't thought of Xander's dream in terms of, of like the, the travel and the running away and that kind of stuff. But it is really all about movement and motion. Like you, you talked about how he's, he's going from one side of the school to the other. Like all of his scenes have to do with transitioning from one location to another, um, like from the ice cream truck, which by the way, let's point out the fact that that, uh, that scene include included a deliberately, uh, comically bad example of, green screen scenery in the background <laughs> yeah. uh, of, of them driving. Uh, but then like he crawls out of the truck and he's in an, all of a sudden he's in the basement and then he runs through the closet and he's, he's, I don't remember where, like his whole dream was about constantly moving from one set, from one stage into another. Yeah. And I think that reflects his issues this entire season. Where do I belong? Where mm-hmm. do I fit in going from being a bartender to being a pizza delivery person to hot dog on a stick. I forget the order of those to the ice cream truck. Um, he's doing a lot of job hopping. He is maybe not evolving as he's moving. And he, and one of the reasons why it's so easy for Spike to manipulate him and tell him that his friends think he should just join the army is because he doesn't know where he belongs. Like he's, he has no solid standing in the group anymore. So he thinks, right. Uh, so another great thing that comes out of Xander's dream is the whole, um, the, uh, the foreshadowing of tabula rasa <laughs> with spike, uh, spike dressing like Giles and Giles claiming that he's like a son to me. 
Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. You know what? Before we, because I love that Randy Giles suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, just very quickly about the first appearance of Sinea. Um, I would like to talk about her wardrobe. Okay. Uh, just because uh, it is a Hollywood trope that thankfully is being moved away from, but, um, you know, I don't know how much research they did. Random white paint on people's faces is not the same thing as uh, tribal beauty markings. And I don't know where those cobwebs came from for Sinea. I mean, the the mummy wrappings or whatever that she's in. What is going on with that? Uh, It, it, it makes her look like a Halloween prop, which I guess in a way she kind of is used as a, a prop of just, you know, menace it, it throughout the whole thing. But the, I, that I don't understand what that material is supposed to convey visually, you know, why have it there at all? Is it supposed to be like, she used to have sheets around her, but they've deteriorated over the years or, uh, is it that she is so old that she has cobweb-like materials around her? Or I just, I, I'm baffled by that wardrobe choice. Absolutely baffled. It's fascinating. I had, I had never thought cobwebs while I was, had been watching it. I just, it, it just struck me as a, I mean, mummy doesn't make any more sense than cobwebs, but it just struck me as that sort of, again it's meant to it's the the ill-advised shorthand for primitive and yeah. uh and and i don't know um ancient i guess is that she's just wrapped in tattered fabric or something but yeah. well but speaking of mummy uh the way that she kills willow in the dream um is very much like how inca mummy girl uh, drains people. We see this image of Willow's face all of a sudden becoming kind of um, desiccated. Desiccated, yes. Thank you. Uh, in the way that um, Empada did to her victims all the way back in season two. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first impulse is to say it's almost vampiric the way that Sinea kind of gets on top of Willow and seems to bite into her neck, but this rapid aging and drying out is not something that vampires normally do. I thought that that was an interesting choice though, because the slayer, the first slayer doing something that's so visually uh, evocative of vampirism. See, uh, yeah. How do, what do we do with that? How do we wrap our minds around that? Well, since we eventually learned that the first slayer was created by um, putting a demon, the, the essence of a demon. I don't remember if it's an actual demon. I don't remember how it works, but basically they put a demon inside a human, which is what vampires are. Yeah. They are human bodies with a demon essence poured into them. So yeah, I mean, it's the Slayer line. They basically are vampires. So. Mm. Um, back to that moment. Um, just a random observation. Uh, I enjoy the, how the camera moves up and down and swings with Giles and Spike dressed as Randy Giles. Uh, I just enjoyed how they seem to be moving back and forth, but the shots of Xander are 
stable. And yeah. I think that that might reinforce what we were just talking about, about Xander being in a constant state of movement and travel, but not really having a set uh, home or a fixed point. Yeah, anywhere. Being, being directionless and... Yeah, and Spike is swinging really high. I thought that too. I wondered, is that just that uh, <laughs> that um, James Marsters is better on a swing than uh, Anthony Stewart Head, or is there a reason why he's going twice as high as Giles is? I don't know. It, it was hitting playground alarm levels. Like if one of my kids was swinging that high, I I would intervene. Come on, it's put just... your back into it. A watcher scoffs at gravity. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so something that emerges in Xander's dream, which continues in some of the other dreams, is uh, this cinematic technique of someone's voice speaking lines while the camera is on their face and their lips are not moving. Right. Uh, we get that with Joyce saying the, you know, are you sure it isn't comfort? We hear her voice, but her lips are not moving, and there is something very eerie and dreamlike about that um we also see it in later on where uh <laughs> we just think you're really interesting yeah sexy tara <laughs> says that yeah Ooh, which i noticed this time around that both in xander's and giles's dreams women who are the objects of romantic affections or sexual attraction have bright red lipstick on like, Super bright red lipstick on. I don't know what. Well, we might read that as um, sort of the male dream brain is more bluntly mm-hmm. and clumsily uh, sexualizing I, women. I, I, I mean, it goes back to the red curtains. Yeah, no, it does. Red is definitely a color of sexiness. Joyce is wearing that red dress. Uh, <laughs> We also see that happen in Giles's dream, but the the technique of the face with the lips not moving while we hear the voice is not sexy in Giles's dream. It's horrifying. The you never had a watcher. We hear as the red blood drips across his face, and we presume that he is being lobotomized or something yeah. by the Slayer just off camera. And it it's interesting the use of that technique. And the red imagery in the show's use of that technique. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the the most horrifying image in the whole thing was was uh, Giles being scalped or lobotomized or whatever was happening there. Um, yeah, there's not. I feel like there's not a lot to analyze in Giles's dream necessarily, except I mean there is, but I I don't have a lot of notes about his thing. Uh, most of my notes involve how uh, absolutely amazing I feel like the whole black and white photo op Spike scene <laughs> is. I every every single shot of Spike uh, posing dramatically for the cameras is utterly brilliant. Um, and then the exposition song, which the, season four gave us uh, numerous examples of Anthony Stewart Head singing, but this is the first time where it felt like, oh, this is the beginnings. Like, this is the origin of Once More with Feeling right here. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, Giles can sing. Where else can we have Giles sing? Let's let's actually write something funny and pertinent to the episode and have Anthony Stewart Head sing that. Um, uh, before we move off of Xander's dream, um, very quickly, I did a little bit of looking into the uh, segment of it right before it goes into 
uh, Apocalypse Now or the Apocalypse Now parody. Um, oh, is where... this the French you're talking about? French, yes. Um, in case you or your listeners did not know, uh, the words in French translate to. So Giles is saying all the others have gone ahead. Now listen carefully. Your life may depend on what I am about to tell you. You need to. And then in French, what he says is get to the house where we're all sleeping. Your friends there are having a wonderful time and getting on with their lives. And the creature can't hurt you there. And then Xander, go where? I don't understand. And then Giles still in French says, oh, for God's sake, this is no time for your idiotic games. (laughs) And then (laughs) Anya comes running in and says, Xander, you have to come with us now. Everybody is waiting for you. And then Giles says, again, still in French, that's what I've been trying to tell him. Um, And then he says, you know, honey, I don't. And Anya says, again, in French, it's not important. I'll take you there. Um, One fun fact is that the person who is uh, speaking the French is Diego Gutierrez, Josh Josh Whedon's assistant at the time, um, (laughs) who is speaking French with a Mexican accent. In the world of international Buffy studies, a lot of native French speakers had a lot of trouble understanding and translating, apparently, because it's French spoken with a Mexican accent. So (laughs) do that what you will, but um, it is, to me, another example of the show having a political identity without explicitly saying, this is our political identity. Uh, The scene works in its... um, surreal scariness best if you don't speak French. If you, like Xander, are completely baffled by what Giles is saying, uh, what Anya is saying in that moment, if you are a French speaker, you would probably still get that the idea is that Xander is bewildered and has no idea what is being said to him, but you would know what is being said, so that level of confusion would be removed for you. Uh, So the show is definitely fixed within, decidedly, American and uh, Anglophone tradition, even though nobody on the show ever says anything like Anglophone. <laughs> uh, they, um, I'm trying to remember what episode it was. Uh, I guess it was the Yoko Factor. Um, no, no, it was Primeval. Uh, Xander, when they're when they're deciding that they're going to do that spell, um, and uh, and. Giles is saying, you know, well, you have to do, you have to recite the spell in in ancient Sumerian. Well, I speak ancient Sumerian or whatever. Um, and uh, Xander says to Buffy, um, "See, this is what you get for studying French instead of ancient Sumerian or whatever." <laughs> so, I don't know. Just... Oh yeah, good catch. He does. Um, but it, it it reminds me of how in Firefly, uh, the idea that these characters switch back and forth between English and Mandarin because they're growing out of U.S. and China being the universe's superpowers. Mm-hmm. And the times when a character will switch from English into something in Mandarin, and it has the effect of the audience who is not speaking Mandarin themselves to be this kind of quote-unquote exotic foreign language where they don't know quite what is being said, and it makes it sound almost otherworldly and the effect does not come across the same if the audience member understands what is being said in Mandarin um so again one of those ways where the way that media works is and it's a specific viewpoint that just is so built into the show and normalized that we have to consciously stop and 
look at it with fresh eyes again to recognize that there is politics built into the structure, even though it is not saying as much or saying as such. Yeah. Uh, also, Buffy does not have bangs in season four. I remember last time you and I talked, last time I was on the podcast, Buffy was going through her weird senator <laughs> wife phase and she had the bangs. Uh, <laughs> what well, Buffy has a lot in season four, and I can't remember... Uh, I, I cannot remember which one of my guests pointed this out to me, but ever since they did, I can't help but notice that so often in season four, Buffy either is um, like p- possessed by an evil force or is acting out of character or like when, she, when faith is in her body or whatever, anytime Buffy is acting um out of character, they give her the the curly locks of evil or something like that, and uh, that that seems to happen quite a bit in season four, where she's she's got much curlier hair when she's acting unlike her normal self. Oh yeah, she goes through a whole crimping phase, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. Oh, Buffy. Um, All right, and- Buffy's no. dream. <laughs> Buffy's dream. Oh wait, one more thing. Sorry, going back okay. to Xander's because I know that you and I talked about this during. Um, the Miracle Snow episode. What was the... Oh, I can't believe I'm blanking on it. The Miracle Snow ep- amends. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> when Xander is outside, sleeping outside because of his family's drunken Christmas fights. Remember, mm-hmm. we talked about how Xander... The construction of Xander's home life happened sort of at the margins. But if we look at these marginal pieces together, we get a picture painted for us of a really unpleasant, abusive situation and it comes to a head in this uh you know i think maybe for me the scariest moment is maybe because it's the most again mundane and banal and every day a drunken abusive father like yelling in his face it just it terrifies me and it makes me feel for xander in a way that i don't sometimes otherwise um yeah xander I Xander gets a little bit of uh, here at the very end of season four. And then uh, in the early parts of season five, I don't remember how long into season five it continues, but I feel like right here begins at least a short run of a little bit of salvaging of Xander for me. Yeah. For at least this brief period of time, they take steps to make Xander uh, a little more, uh, sympathetic and early in season five they they have him come a little more into like himself and um he becomes slightly less awkward and and useless at least by his own by his standards or whatever and like i said i can't remember how long that continues but at least for a short run here we're getting into an into the 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 era of xander actually being not quite uh as obnoxious <laughs> as I have accused him of being. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe because we see him feeling embarrassed and humiliated and it so- somewhat humbles him. I think maybe it stops serving that purpose once he gets his own apartment and mm-hmm. moves out of his parents' house. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's one episode in, is it early season five where he and Anya are lying there and they can hear his parents arguing upstairs? I, I think actually that might be Buffy versus Dracula. I think that might actually be the first episode of the season. Oh, wow. Um, no. 
I don't remember which episode it is. It's one of the first three because it's the the next episode of this podcast I'm going to do is uh, they're having movie night. They have uh, Riley and and Buffy over and they're watching a movie and upstairs they hear clumsy burglars is how he describes them. <laughs> His parents come home and have a fight upstairs. Well, no wonder he's obnoxiously um, making jokes all the time. Mm-hmm. Like he, I'm sure it's a coping mechanism for that character. Uh, okay. Buffy's dream. <clears throat> Cause I know you are trying to get out of here very soon. <laughs> yes. Well, let's, uh, fortunately Buffy's dream, I think is pretty straightforward. It is. It is. I mean, I, the things that I would want to talk about about Buffy's dream all harken back to, well, this this troubling depiction of her relationship to the first Slayer, the troubling depiction of the first Slayer, mm-hmm. um, but also this curious tendency of this episode to both call back to earlier seasons while also foreshadowing seasons yet to come. Um, for example, Buffy saying, Faith and I just made that bed, calling back to season three. Right. The, the but clock then, the clock reads seven thirty. Yeah, the clock reads seven thirty. But then uh, Tara is saying, "Be back before dawn." Right. That's right. clearly foreshadowing something that is going to happen. Um, so it kind of creates Buffy as this uh, uh, this this median point where the present resides. You know, precisely in the middle of the past and the future. At least in this episode. Dawn gets the great line, you think you know what's to come, what you are, you haven't even begun. Um, And I say that the reason that line is great is because Dracula actually repeats that line um, in the next episode, in Buffy vs. Dracula, um, although he says it better, in my opinion. (laughs) But I always remember the line as, you think you know uh, what you are, what's to come. You haven't even begun. Tara says, you think, you know, what's to come, what you are. That sounds backwards to me because I always remember it the way Dracula says it. <laughs> but at any rate, um, some people might think of that Buffy versus Dracula. Oh, that's a callback to what dreams Tara said. No, I actually think of it as this is foreshadowing to what Dracula is going to reveal. Yeah. <laughs> we also, uh, can think of it like Tara being a dream stand in mouthpiece for other characters, the way that she is later for Sinea. So she's maybe the foreshadow mouthpiece for Dracula. Why not? Sure. I buy it. She's um, a better actor than Dracula. I'm sorry. That was a cheap <laughs> shot. I'm not a fan of the Dracula portrayal <laughs> in, mm. in uh, Buffy versus Dracula. But anyways, um, yeah, be yeah. back before dawn. Um, be back before dawn and the, uh, yeah, I mean, we have said a lot of this stuff. The all of, all of the issues that there are to unpack in this incident with the first Slayer, um, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I imagine that the writers might have thought that they were trying to honor the uh, African origins of all of humanity by placing this Slayer into some prehistoric tribal past which they don't say specifically africa but in the language of cinema that is what it is coded as right the fact the fact that it's set in a in a sort of desert looking setting yeah yeah and we find out later in get it done that yes that was the continent i mean that also is another thing that shows the the political affiliations of the show or maybe the political ignorances of the show because africa is such a huge place. You know, the, the tendency of Western audiences to think of Africa as a, um, 
a uniform and homogenized location rather than a place where there are bustling metropolises and there's no peaked mountaintops right, and right. there's uh, the driest desert in the world. Uh, you know, the, the image of Hollywood of Africa is exactly what is shown in this episode. I wanted to point, I, I like the, the dream Riley and dream Adam sequence, not only because it's just fun. It's, it's just fun to see, uh, I loved the cinematography. I loved the way the camera moved yeah. underneath the glass table. It looked up yeah. through the table at the gun next to Riley's hand as he's talking about, we're going to take over the world. Baby, um, where's the government? Right. And uh, he calls Buffy killer, which uh, she doesn't respond to, but that's been a thing in a, a few recent episodes where she does not take kindly to being referred to as a killer. Um, and yeah. I think that also comes back in Buffy versus Dracula. He calls her a killer and she's like, I prefer Slayer. Um, but also, it was just fun to see George Hertzberg out of the makeup, um, and he's like, he's surprisingly attractive as not a made-up uh, Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, you know, my first thought honestly was, that's it. That's Adam. Adam should be three feet taller and two feet wider than that. The what? the wider in particular <laughs> without the makeup, he looks like tall and skinny. And yeah. my I was like, how much makeup did they layer on top of him to turn him into Adam? Yeah. Um, but Oh, anyway, so that the other reason I love that scene is that is where my, I said, I have a very specific favorite shot in this entire episode. And it is, um, it comes in that scene when um, when Dream Adam is saying uh, something about, I can't remember what his line is, but it's something about our power comes from darkness or whatever. And You uh, and I come by it from another way. And then she says, we're not demons. We're not demons. The, that <laughs> shot is, is Buffy uh, is in the foreground, in focus. And then in the background behind her, unbeknownst to her, out of focus is Sinea. Oh, yeah. Um, lurking very ominously right behind her. And she says, we're not demons. And, uh, and of course, Adam says, is that a fact? But um, I just, uh, one of my favorite moments in the episode, it's, I, for some reason, I just love that shot. I love the framing of that shot. I love what that shot says. So, And it also is another Cabin in the Woods uh, precursor because we hear that voice, which I think is Lindsay Krauss probably, but it sounds very much the way that Sigourney Weavers does in Cabin in the Woods, where she, where she said, the monsters are on the loose. Please run for your lives. I hadn't even thought of that. That hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> That's great. Um, so a uh, question of where the Slayer power comes from. And uh, it jumped out at me this time how anticlimactic the Slayer on Slayer battle is. At a certain point, Buffy basically just says, enough, I'm done. This is over. And and so it is. You know, she can no longer be physically harmed or metaphysically harmed, I guess, because they're still in the dream space. You know, Sinea is kind of uh, fruitlessly stabbing at her and Buffy rolls her eyes at her. Uh, this is another moment where we have Buffy representing the present and progress and moving forward and Sinea representing something that we are glad that we have evolved past, uh, which again is a little bit troubling 
uh, not just because of the racial politics of the episode, but also because it really puts Buffy at odds with the source of her power. It is an interesting, Uh, it's an interesting resolution because you could, you could read it as the, she survives. She, she makes her way out of the dream by acknowledging what the dream is trying to tell her by acknowledging, um, this is the source of my power. Um, although she is very explicitly saying you're not the source of me, I think is what she says. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. It's really weird that she just, she basically just shuts the whole thing off by, um, I guess in previous seasons, Buffy has resolved certain conflicts this way where she just kind of suddenly realizes it's a, it's a very labyrinth moment. You have no power over me. (laughs) Um, uh, I guess she's done that before, but you're right. It feels sort of strange and anticlimactic in this moment. And maybe that's just because we have foreknowledge. We know that there's more of this coming in the future at the time. Maybe it felt uh, triumphant where you're like, yeah, Buffy, that's right. Your, your power doesn't come from darkness or whatever, but, um, well, I mean, I can tell you that the very first time I saw it, I thought the line about in terms of hair care, you have to ask what kind of message is sending in the workplace because that was, uh, that was troubling. However she says it. Well, the first time I saw it, I thought it was funny. I thought it was like in line with Buffy's clever quippiness and, uh, in rewatching and, just generally my own progression uh, in thinking and scholarship, um, realizing how incredibly offensive that is in light of the real world's uh, analog to that being how often um, black men and women are told that their hair is unprofessional when their hair is natural. Right. You know, when literally this is the, the hair that God gave them, right? But they are being told by institutions that this is not appropriate for that kind of thing. You have to hide this part of yourself or somehow massage it so that it's to our standards and we are the arbiters of what is or is not professional looking hair. And I always hate to see Buffy reenact that because it means so much to me when Buffy subverts that, you know, um, so this this is a thing. My fave is problematic that on every rewatch I, I hold both of these things in tension where I love her clever quippiness and I cringe so hard at this particular clever quip. <sighs> yeah, I uh this this is a thing I talk so much about nostalgia. We literally just talked about this on my other podcast on Gobbledy Geek the other day. Uh my so much of my at least the perceptions that many people have of me is that so much of my life is wrapped up in nostalgia of my, my love of things old and my childhood and all that stuff that uh, I often will revisit stuff that I am in love with from my past and find that it doesn't, sometimes it holds up, but most of the time it doesn't really hold up. And so I am constantly trying to come to terms to make peace with the fact that, um, you know, it's, it is okay to, have a fondness for something that you watched in the seventies and recognize that it was a product of its time. And you can, you can still like it. You just don't, (laughs) you have to recognize that the world has moved 20 or 30 years beyond this now. Yeah. um, Paul, I got one word for you. Ghostbusters. 
my favorite movie for the first 30 years of my life. And then one day I watched it and uh, Venkman was a sexist, misogynistic, dismissive, exploitative. I, I thought about what it must look like from Dana's point of view when she is introduced to the world of the Ghostbusters. Have I gone through this with you already? I don't think so. Um, so imagine from her point of view, it's like she's super tired. She's home at the end of a long day and she stopped at the grocery store after work and she comes to her hallway and oh no, there's this guy and he's always trying to cling on her and she has tried to be nice. She's said no. She's trying not to be out and out dismissive of him, but he will not take no for an answer. He literally crowds her at the door. She has to shut the door in his face to get some peace and quiet. And then there's there's a Zool in her fridge. <laughs> I hate when that happens. I hate when that happens. But then the thing that stands between her and getting professional help for this problem is that one of the professionals likes her and she has to navigate around how do I get the services that could save my life without uh, having to say yes to this person who, let's face it, I'm meeting and talking to because I'm in such a vulnerable position and they have the power to help me. I mean, this is equivalent to if your car breaks down and the mechanic starts hitting on you. You know, like you, you have to be nice to them. You can't be like, shut up, stop hitting on me, get to work, because then they're not going to cooperate with you. So there's this very subtle but unsaid kind of uh, maneuvering that you do where you get roped into flirting back so that you can do what they really should have done without causing you to go through that. Um, and they they start dating. And yeah, then it, the whole thing about whether one is able to give consent when one is the key master or the gatekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, well, I, it, it was like seeing it for the first time <laughs> and I was crushed. I was crushed. Cause how could it be that this is the same film that this isn't like the, the super sexist director's cut or anything. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I feel like uh, many times I, get myself into trouble, particularly on social media. I always get myself in trouble on social media, but one of the things that I feel like probably gets me into some hot water is I often allow myself to forgive. So Ghostbusters is continues to be one of my all time favorite films. I, yeah. And, and, uh, you're going to call. I, I just, I allow myself to forgive certain films, certain things that I love that are of a time. I, I allow myself to forgive them for that. And so I've certainly noticed, particularly I haven't, I haven't, I'm glad you pointed out the power dynamic between Dana and uh, Venkman. Um, I will say I haven't often thought about it in those terms. The, the key master and gatekeeper absolutely is the thing that I'm like, Ugh, ooh, I don't, yeah. <laughs> this is, this, this would not play in a movie made these days, but um yeah, I don't know. There there are certain things. Ghostbusters is one of them. There are certain uh, properties that are unquestionably problematic in today's climate that I'm like, you know what? It's I I just have to let it go. I love this movie so much. I can't <laughs> I can't dwell on that. Well, I think that it is reflective of the fact of human reality and that we are not unproblematic beings. I mean, even those of us who try our hardest to be as conscientious 
and politically radical as possible are working from within a system that is rigged to benefit the few at the expense of the many. And unless we go out and live on an island all by ourselves without any modern conveniences or connecting to any of the world at all, which let's Appealing. face it. <laughs> oh, um, but so incredibly unlikely. I mean, we, we, we are what we are. Like we, it, it reminds me of, um, yeah, people who say that they hate government and they don't want Uncle Sam intervening in their lives, but then they also uh, avail themselves of federal student aid when they go to college. Yeah, they also yeah. drive on interstate highways that are paid for with tax money collected by the big government. Like, you have to acknowledge that being human means you can oppose that, but also you use infrastructures that are courtesy of that thing that you oppose there is no uncomplicated way to be i think the answer is to acknowledge and you know hold that complication instead of pretending that you can get rid of all problematic depictions ever i mean i don't think that anybody is doing anything noble if they say i loved ghostbusters fears but now i hate it and everyone who likes it is trash that's <laughs> You know what I mean? That just doesn't make sense. That's not accurate to human experience. You you can say, like, I realized that there were a lot of things that were problematic, and it pains me because there's so much I still love about it. That, to me, is being truthful and reckoning with the reality of our troubled times. I think that... The, yeah. Um, this might be a good time for me to mention that I am politically independent. Uh, I am not affiliated with either... Democrats or Republicans, and uh, one of the reasons I I like to stay that way is because of how I see that kind of attitude, that um, feigning of moral purity happening on all sides of the spectrum. You know, uh, we have gotten way off of topics. <laughs> well, that's the that's the fun thing about uh, academic studies of Buffy is that it can cover all topics. <laughs> It does. Well, I can work it back in because for me, the the thing that jumped out at me about the conclusion of this episode this time around is that Giles basically states the moral of the story, saying that invoking the Slayer's power was an affront to the source of that power, which I think is very true and I think is what everyone's big takeaway should have been. But Buffy says, oh, next time you should mention that part. And then they're on to Coco and Kitchen Buddies. And I wish that there was a moment of real like, huh, wow, maybe maybe the Slayers, the first Slayers power, maybe that invocation wasn't ours to dive into. You know, uh, I, I wish that I saw them doing that conflicted reckoning more. Right. Well... Uh, I mean, I agree with you, but to be fair, it was a season ender. And in in certain measure, season five, that's kind of the big bad of season five. I mean, there 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 is a big bad of season five. But one of the elements that season five addresses is the uh, the nature of the Slayer's darkness or whatever. And obviously that doesn't get resolved until, hey, heads up, people. There's some fun stuff in season five, but we are we're heading into the dark days. 
No, you are in for pain. <laughs> pain and anguish and more pain and some weird frumpy minions. Oh, I love the frumpy much. minions. Yeah. Oh, I love them too. I'm excited for uh, when you get to talking about glory. Mm-hmm. What an interesting... Which, by the way, this technique of um, hearing a character while the camera is visually on their lips not moving is something that happens with Glory, I think, more than once to illustrate her mania. It's just, it's a very unsettling and effective cinematic technique. Uh, I like that the show makes use of it. Yeah, I wonder, um, I wonder how often uh, the, the topic of mental health will be discussed when we're, when we're delving into season five. I'm sure it'll come up. Oh, you know what, though? Something that has nothing to do with the world of Whedon, but if you like pain and you like really... <laughs> I'm a podcaster. Of course I like pain. <laughs> um, one of the things I'm doing for my job these days is planning a series of in-school residencies around uh, the Poughkeepsie Big Read, uh, which is this National Endowment of the Arts-sponsored uh, community-wide reading initiative. There's a book that's chosen every year and then... There's film screenings and guest lectures and weekend classes and uh, all kinds of community activities around this book. We bring the author in to talk, and we also do in-school residencies where um, the students make media projects as an alternative to written assignments. That is a long-winded way of getting to. It's a book of short stories called Burning Bright by Ron Rash. And one of these short stories is in my opinion, the most perfect short story I have ever read. And it is so heavy. I've read it maybe six or seven times now, and I get choked up every single time. It's so good. I am going to scan it, and I'm going to send it to you, because you're going to... you're gonna. I don't know if you are into fiction, but it's not yes. that long of a short yeah. story, but it is a gut punch. Oh, it's so good. It's so... What, what's the title of it? It's called The Ascent. Okay. And it is about a uh, fifth grade boy named Jared who loves playing make-believe. And you slowly start to realize that he plays make-believe because his reality is kind of awful. His parents are meth addicts. Mm. And some other stuff goes down where the line between make-believe and reality gets blurred. And it's beautifully told. It is very sad. Ugh. It's... <laughs> well, I I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I know. How sick are we? I'm like, oh, it hurts me so much. You try now. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the joke I often make about people that are like, oh, this tastes terrible. Here, (laughs) try it. (laughs) No, I don't. I I trust you. I take your word for it. Uh, All right. Well, so. um, So we're 12 minutes over our our desired end time. That's better than the 90 minutes over we were last time, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, we did great. We did great. This is awesome. Um, so thank you so much for being here. And uh, again, I every single time I record one of these, I fail to have my uh, my cast list open. So I don't know if you're scheduled for anything in the future, but I have to have you back. So um, just let me know if there are any other episodes that you absolutely want to discuss. We'll see what we can make happen. Thank you. Uh, yeah. in, the, in the meantime, anything uh, that you want to pitch or or pimp to the audience um just to keep an eye out for re-entering the dollhouse uh it's a look back at dollhouse uh 10 years after the series end edited by michael Starr and heather porter 
I have an essay in there about Boyd Langton and um, the many complicated feelings that fans had around what happened to Boyd Langton. Uh And, uh, yeah, actually, uh, another thing that people can be on the lookout for, um, you remember the last time we talked, I was making uh, moves to try and start my own podcast. Yes. Um, But in the months that have occurred since it's taken a different direction whereby I am now working with a group of high school students to create a podcast for the mayor's office of Poughkeepsie. It is called the PK go getter podcast. And it is something that, uh, that, that I'm getting paid to do. <laughs> which is- oh my gosh. Come on now. <laughs> Good you, time. you are getting paid to do podcasting. I hate you. No, well, uh, you can help if if you would like. Uh, we we should maybe talk about this not on air. Right. Even. Um, but yeah, the the moral of that story is um, if there is a thing that you want to do, it can't hurt to tell everybody around you that you want to do it. And if you uh, find you can't do it because you don't have the time to do it outside of your day job. It can't hurt to uh, yell and kick and scream until you can do this part of your day job. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's uh, Thank you. that's awesome. Is that is that available right now, or is it still in production? Um, it's still in production. Which, wow, podcasting takes so much editing work. I had so much respect to you for doing not just one but two podcasts, right? This and Gobbledygeek. Uh, and I have a third that's about to start. Yeah. Oh, what's your third that's about to start? It's a, um, this is something else we should talk about off mic, but I will, because it's a uh, self-pimping, I'll briefly mention, I'll ask you, are you aware that, uh, that I've published a book or I, I co-edited and co-wrote a book? Was this the, uh, Daily Counter of Justice? Yes. Uh, so yeah. that, is, that's a, that's an entire fictional universe that, that myself and my, uh, collaborators, created uh, and we set that all up the idea was it was going to be a shared universe and other authors could come in and they could take advantage of the characters and the space and they could tell stories in that we always had plans for more books following that but we're we are scattered and lazy and so we've never put anything together this is the fourth time i've tried to get a project going Um, hopefully this time it will take off this time the form it's taking is it's kind of an actual play podcast. So the things sweeping the universe right now are actual play role-playing game podcasts. Um, it's, oh yeah. Yeah. It's like kind of, well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like um, the adventure zone and, and the friends at the table, those things. Um, so it's kind of like that. Uh, it's going to be, I will be running what is essentially a role-playing game, but it's going to be a collaborative storytelling podcast uh, with me as the quote-unquote game master and then i'll have uh players playing characters and we will collaborate to basically write a book on air is what it's going to be that's amazing oh that's fantastic good for you paul i'm glad to hear that and the more i say that out loud on mic where people can hear the more likely it is to actually happen damn it i mean i'm about i'm about to plunk a whole bunch of money into (laughs) setting up infrastructure to make this thing happen so it better happen but anyways I believe in you. You Thank can make you. it happen. It's going to be great. Your, <laughs> you. your collaborators are going to be phenomenally entertaining. You are going to own Patreon. Uh, okay, sure. 
I have, yeah, in, in a decade of podcasting, I have never uh, monetized any of the damn stuff I've done. So we'll see what happens. But You know what, though? At the same time, I heard a speaker last night, a guy named Austin Cleon, who pointed out that in 2019, the highest compliment you can give somebody about their cooking is you could start a food truck with that, <laughs> with their knitting. You know, you could sell this on Etsy and that there is something to be said for maintaining hobbies instead of turning them into side hustles. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's about the balance. May you find that balance and may you have a lot of fun. doing. Thank you. Thank you. I, fingers oh. crossed. So uh, <laughs> anyways, again, Mary Ellen, thank you for joining me and uh, thank you all at home for listening uh you can find links to this and all the past episodes at the website cons with dead uh or you can subscribe to the show on itunes if you do so please rate us or write us a review there's a there are a swath of buffy podcasts despite the irony that at the top of the show we say in every generation there is one podcast (laughs) there are more there's more than one so uh say something nice about me help me stand out from the crowd uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at conswithdead. And on Facebook, we have the Facebook group Conversations with Conversations with Dead People. Uh, next week, I'm joined by Dax Stokes, host of the award-winning podcast The Vampire Historian, uh, as we discuss the first three episodes of Season 5, Buffy vs. Dracula, Real Me, and The Replacement. Uh, until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. It's strange. It's not like anything we've faced before. It seems familiar somehow. Of course. The spell we cast with Buffy must have released some primal evil that's come.